I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all for coming. What a, what a nice, what a mi- miserable night. <laughs> And a, a beautiful crowd. It's like, it's, it's lovely. Thank you all for coming out. Um, oh, excuse me. <laughs> Delighted to welcome Ella Risbridger and Kate Young here to celebrate the publication of their new title, The Dinner Table. Over 100 writers on food from all sorts of places. You're going to take us on this journey tonight it's together. Exactly Can't wait. Um, this, honestly, this is so lovely. We're delighted you wanted to come and do this. Thank you. Our guests are going to talk for about, well, maybe like an hour in total. Yeah. Rather than having questions just at the end, you are welcome uh, to, to, as they come to you, to ask questions throughout. And they will keep an eye on you, call you. And then if you don't mind just calling out, projecting, and they'll reiterate over the mic, keep the conversation nice and fluid. But if you've got things to say, please feel free. You're really encouraged to say them as the conversation's going on. Um, yeah, so including your, your questions, we'll be here about an hour, and then afterwards, Kate and Ella will sign. No. It's <laughs> <laughs> embarrassing. That'd be so cruel. <laughs> After the event, I will be forging this. Yeah, great. <laughs> at the table, so feel free to come up. Um, yeah, so please do stick around and buy the book. A great Christmas present, I think, apart from anything else. It's so heavy. It really <laughs> looks like you've made it. will make effort. you feel like, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to get out of the way now and shut up and hand over Thanks, to Claire. the pros. Thank you all for coming, and thank you, Kate and Ella. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Claire. Thanks so much. I was clapping Claire. We were clapping yeah, Claire. Yeah, we're clapping Claire, not us. Yeah. I suddenly thought, like, are we clapping us? No. Yeah, I'll clap you. <laughs> I'll always clap you. Um, but just to reiterate, please do, if we're saying something and you have something to say, please put your hand up. Um, it makes it feel more chatty and more like a conversation and, and more interesting also. And it also means we don't get that weird 10 minutes at the end of, any questions, please? Uh, we've left some time and uh, so we're just going to chat. Yeah, because that's awful and then yeah. I just want to leave. Exactly. And I will. You will. <laughs> <laughs> Because I have no self-control. <laughs> and if I'm bored for one... What's that? Is it the Kim Cattrall thing? It's like, I don't want to be a situation for even an hour when I'm not enjoying myself. Yeah. Um, which I feel very strongly about. Yeah, and I think that's possibly a good place to start. It does feel like a good place to start, I think. Because one thing that's important to know is that this book is an anthology. And I had said, sort of, with my agent kind of stepping quite firmly on my neck, no more anthologies ever. And not just my agent, Kate also. Mm-hmm. Uh, our housemate Tash, my partner, 
pretty much everyone, everyone who's been around while me. you've been making an anthology has said no more anthologies. Mm, yes. <laughs> so here's our new here's, anthology. Here's our new <laughs> anthology um, that we were approached to to do together, and I am the yes person, I guess, between us in that mm. my immediate impulse was to say, well, of course, yes, great, how exciting, thrilling, and Ella was like, mm, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how we're gonna do it and what it would look like and why we would do one. It has been, a, it's been a very interesting dynamic to navigate, actually, in that Kate's default response to being asked to do something is, of, of course, I'm so sorry, I didn't think to do it <laughs> earlier. And my default response to being asked to do something is like, no, Leave me alone. <laughs> I will never do that. Even if I was about to, even if I was about to do it, the asking is like, no, no, I hate you. And instead we had to sort of sit down and talk about what version of this we would want to make together. What version of it felt like an anthology that didn't already exist because there's loads of food anthologies around. There's loads of collections of food writing. There's loads of magazines that bring together great food writing. There's loads of people doing this. And when we went for our initial meetings, it was very much like, well, it could be in chronological order or it could be sort of a collection of writers and we could organise them alphabetically or you could do them by time period or you could do them by yeah. country or any sort of other things that came up and we didn't really I want mean, to I, do any of those. As I'm sure this will become a theme. I said no. Yes. Um, and I said maybe. And Kate said yeah, yeah, yeah sounds sure. great. Yeah. I hate it, but sure, <laughs> if that's what you want. Um, and I think so. Head of Zeus, who have been Kate's publishers for many years, her many wonderful cookbooks, which you are available for purchase. <laughs> They're sitting behind you. Are they? Yeah, oh, great. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> Kate's books, which are available for purchase, um, asked us if we would write, pull together an anthology of the 100 best pieces of food writing, which was never going to happen. No. Because that would be an impossible task and also create us so many enemies. Yeah, we, we felt very strongly that the word best needed to be nowhere near the book. Um, because of just the, the challenge of going, yeah, yesterday that felt like the best two pieces, but I could never pick a hundred best pieces and I could never stand by it for more than 15 seconds. No, I, I think I feel very strongly. It's like when people ask me what my favourite book is and it's like, I don't know. What are you, what are you asking? <laughs> what are you trying to find out about me? And so it's instead we tricky went, question. if we take best out, and don't approach the book that way at all. What version of an anthology? What story do we want to tell with it? Who are we going to bring together? What, what do we want fun? to make? And what would crucially be fun? Because once again, I don't do anything that I think is boring. <laughs> Kate does a lot of things that I think are boring. That's like true. Spreadsheets and taxes, including my taxes, <laughs> which is nice of her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's um, very nice of you. Yes, when I say out loud, it sounds worse. All voices, all everything else. I'm sorry, thank you. <laughs> When I say it out loud to a crowd of people, it suddenly sounds so terrible, but I am nice in many other ways. And you, you also do, you read all my work and make sure it's not stupid. I do that. Yeah. I'm nice too. Yeah. Incompetent, but nice. Uh, I'm not going to even argue with incompetent, but yeah. Um, so, not because it's not true. Because, um, okay, okay. But essentially, I think that doing this together was a real... It was a real conversation to have. It wasn't an immediate, well, obviously, you can probably see if you don't know us already, we touch each other a lot. We are best friends as well as <laughs> writing a lot of this. together. There's a lot of, yes. Um, and we both have watched each other work over years. And I think we are often in the same house and we have very much been there at the crux of watching a piece of work to come together. And I think for both of us, there were reservations about 
would we be able to work together in a way that felt good and rich and fun and that made sense and that actually created a book that went in on time? Yeah. And I, all of those things felt important for one or other of us. I have never missed a deadline. <laughs> it's just that we have different definitions of what a deadline is. Yes. I think the deadline is when someone says to you, hi, just checking in on this. And Kate thinks the deadline is a week the before. The date they told you they need it. <laughs> and before that. Yeah, so there were some differences in working style to overcome. But I think, crucially, we both realised that we would overcome all those hurdles instantly if the project felt fun. Mm. And that actually we were only really interested in making a book that felt like a lot of fun. There's a lot of very dry anthologies. I'm sorry, but there are. There are a lot of very dry anthologies, I own almost all of them, where you use them as kind of a reference text, where you're like, yes, this famous piece of food writing, I can't now think of a single famous piece of food writing, but Good, you, can, not you can imagine one. Name them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right, isn't yeah. it? Don't, don't, don't slag people off <laughs> no, the podcast. No, we are being when recorded as well, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> this is why I need her. Imagine what I would do, left to my own devices. <laughs> Never have a deadline, never have any money, be in prison probably. <laughs> be in prison <laughs> is not true. Yeah, sure. They don't put you in prison. They just charge you a lot later. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's actually quite a relief. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, if, it had you, to if, be if they put you in prison, you won't pay your taxes. They don't want you to do that. This is, this is a real, I need some time to think about this. <laughs> Let's just shelve that one for okay. after. Okay. So, it had to be fun and I think what became clear to us quite fast was that what is fun is having people around for dinner. Mm -hmm. And it's like, right, so that is the kind of food writing and talking about food writing that we both like best. It's when you get a lot of people you like in a room and then you're all excited about something or you've read something and you want to tell someone else about it and you want to share things and you want to communicate things and you, you feel that spark of fun, fun. And we had spent most of the pandemic, we'd been friends before the pandemic, but pandemic happened and we spent probably three-ish hours on the phone every day. Mm -hmm. Not least because I was living alone and so Ella was very much doing a, just checking in on my friend that you're still there and still okay. Were... And sometimes I wasn't. So it was a very good, a very Kate's good flat is in a very beautiful part of the Cotswolds, but she does live on the fourth floor of an old factory. Mill? Mill. Mill. Yeah. Which means that she's very far away, like physically, from everybody and the world. Just people uh, like little ants around. It's amazing. When you go to Kate's house, you're like looking down, you're like, wow, they're just, just like little toys. Mm. And so I was very like, she is alone, but double alone. Mm. So three and a half hours on the phone. And most of that was talking about food. So we would call in the morning and we would talk about breakfast. Kate's breakfasts are incredibly interesting because she has a really broad definition of breakfast which is fun, a fun fact to know about Kate. She's like, I love a vegetable. <laughs> I'm just making some kale. I'm going to put it on some toast. Mm -hmm. and that's not even the worst. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I, I, I do love a vegetable. And so, and obviously Ella would be eating now a fermented thing. And so we would talk every day and then we would go and do our work, we would write our books, we would do our jobs, and then in the evening we would talk again while we were making dinner. And we would often share stuff that we'd read that day. So we'd share a thing, an article that we read, or a piece that we'd read, or a book that we were cooking from, or something else. 
And we just had a huge list of stuff that we were sending back and forth to each other, this endless conversation of, have you read this thing? Have you read this thing? Have you cooked this thing? Can you try this recipe that somebody else wrote? Because mine turned out like this and I wonder what yours would do and all of this back and forth for a and couple of years. with deep frying, I would be like, Kate, can you deep fry this <laughs> for me so I know if it works? Because I hate to deep fry because of my many fears. I love to deep fry because <laughs> I've done loads of catering. So it feels like fun and easy. <laughs> I just think it's all going to go on fire. Yeah, and, and it really die. does. It would happen to me. <laughs> so we knew that we wanted the book to feel like that. And then suddenly the book started to feel much more possible. Mm -hmm. The book started to feel like, oh, you know what? If it felt like this, if it felt like having a conversation about food and food writing and recipes, but more than recipes with your best friend, that could be something fun. And so we went back to have more meetings and both our agents said, no, don't do it. This is a ridiculous project that will take you away from projects that are lucrative because fun fact about anthologies, they're not lucrative for anyone. <laughs> they are So they had to be fun. Yeah. They are sort of lucrative if you only include dead and out of copyright writers. It's true, mm. which is a real limitation on anthologies and was a, is a huge kind of cross to bear that yeah. any anthology has to kind of wrestle with is this every time you pay someone for money you are losing money yeah <laughs> you are giving away money from your already tiny budget and so it's like okay so we know we're not gonna choose exclusively out of copyright old dead white men so we will be losing money on this project from mm -hmm. the start and everyone was like oh okay um well we're still glad we asked you <laughs> Sure, absolutely. And Kate there being like, no, it'll be fine. And me being like, I'll have a spreadsheet. It'll be great. We'll be losing you money. <laughs> Do you still want me? And that's and yes. kind of how And the proceeded. answer was yes. yes. And, and we essentially then sat down and tried to work out what would be a fun thing to put together, who we definitely wanted to include, what things we would start with, what starting points we would have. And also, if we were going to structure it like a conversation, what that looked or felt like. Yeah. So if you're losing money and you had people that you wanted to include, were you then told no, because that's going to cost you? This so, is a really interesting point. It's a really interesting no point. one told us no at any point. Nope. But we knew we had a very set budget. And if we went over that budget, it was our money. It would that we then had to spend. be coming out of our own personal bank accounts, which was, it's not a great position to be in as a writer. <laughs> um, so we, we essentially had a. We think it's really, we've done a couple of events at this point um, about this book and we always think it's useful to talk about money because I don't think anyone in publishing ever talks about money and it's this weird, unspoken, intangible thing. Um, so we knew how much approximately we had to spend on each piece because we knew that they wanted 100 pieces. The reason that there are over 100 writers is because some of the pieces are written by more than one person. Um, but we knew that they wanted about 100 pieces. We knew that we had £20,000 to work with. And so we knew what that would divide up to be and that we would have to, in some way, stick to that as a guideline. And so... Essentially, sometimes people would come back who we couldn't quite afford and it would mean we'd have to put one extra piece of out-of-copyright out of work in. We would basically, we had endless, endless conversations about trying to balance it and trying to decide whether if somebody came in over budget, the piece was either doing something that no other piece was doing, was a voice we really wanted to include and felt like a really important person to have in the book, or was a piece that we were just a bit in love with and we couldn't part with. And then we would work out how to find it, find the money, work out how to sub in somebody yeah, else somewhere else. Yeah, and sometimes else. that meant losing other things we loved. Yep. 
there were a number of pieces where we thought this piece is so perfect, it's great, it's wonderful. And then we would look at it and be like, do we need any more white American lesbians? Which is my personal... (laughs) The answer is yes, spiritually. So so with my first two anthologies, they're both poetry anthologies, and the way I like to arrange anthologies, which is the way that this book is arranged, is so every piece leads you on to the next one. So you start reading at any point in the book and you should be able to just keep reading indefinitely, kind of always feeling like you're being taken by the hand and brought into the next into the next into bit. the next piece. And I have lost my train of thought, but that's not important. <laughs> I'm just going to plow on. American lesbians? Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I started off the, with my first anthology thinking, I am a well-read educated woman who lives in the city I don't need to do any kind of diversity counting because my tastes are so broad and so diverse that that I I will be absolutely fine in terms of diversity and then I looked at what I'd done and it was I would say 70 to 80 percent white American lesbians in the mid-century and nobody else and so really it's interesting that your own personal biases can throw you entirely Mm. and so in this case like do we need in that book do I need one more white American lesbian? Probably not, but I could probably use some queer people of colour from the UK or yep. other countries that are underrepresented. Queer, queer writers of colour mm-hmm. in the UK are particularly underrepresented in publishing in the UK. In the UK generally, yeah. Which is a fun thing, so writing this book, putting this book together, it makes you very aware of where the gaps are. Because you are, you know, there are lots of conversations where we were actively looking for a piece where we were like, we're sure that exists. Surely somebody with this voice is talking about this. Surely we can find. And there are some great publications out there doing stuff, but there's not a lot of traditionally published work by a lot of, you know, Mm. diverse people in writing about food, essentially. What's funny is we, as you'll see, I have a little list here of things Mm. we might like to talk about. And uh, politics is quite a long way down this list. But it was, and I'm not surprised actually that we've jumped straight to mm. the political because for both of us it was clear from the start that this was also kind of a political project. Food writing is always political. You cannot diverge what we eat from who we are and the way we behave. Mm-hmm. And it was really important to me and, and to you as well. Well, to both of us. <laughs> both but of us. I started off with me and then... Yeah, no, no, you me. can include, that's fine. Yeah. Um, it was really important to both of us that we weren't going to pull together a book that felt the same as other anthologies. We were trying to pull together a book that kind of held your hand as it perhaps challenged you or set pieces against each other that might not sit necessarily comfortably next to each other. Mm -hmm. I did want a bit of an argument at this dinner table. I wanted people to feel safe and comfortable, but also to think, what are our preconceptions about this piece of food writing so for example this is a not really political example but I think it's worth doing is we knew from the start there was a very particular piece by Nigella Lawson that we wanted to include and that is Nigella Lawson on mayonnaise and Henry James and Henry James it's from how to eat some of you might remember it yeah it's so good it's one of those pieces where you're like yeah it's basically a perfect piece of writing and it was one of the first pieces that we knew we wanted in the book in a way that felt quite 
unexpected to us because we thought Nigella would be somebody we'd keep as an open person until the end, where we'd be like, well, obviously we will have Nigella on something in this book, but what it is, we don't know. And then we both came to each other and went, it's the mayonnaise piece. So yeah, yeah. And because that mayonnaise piece is quite specific, we kind of felt like it was a bit of a cornerstone. Or like, you know, the table has four corners. We knew we needed some pieces to kind of anchor us, to kind of plan the layout around. Plan the layout. Mm -hmm. And it was like, right, so we could put her in a section for mayonnaise, sure. Eggs, okay, well, that's one side of the table. But then where do you take it on the other side? And it felt really fun to be like, well, Henry James. Let's put her next to Henry James. That will be fun. We know they've got things to talk about. Whether it's fun to read Henry James or not, I guess. <laughs> and then we read a bunch of Henry James and the food in Henry James not very fun. Yeah, I had read some Henry James, <laughs> yeah. but not a lot. I, unlike Nigella, did not spend my teen years reading Henry James, mm -hmm. which is such a funny stealth post. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was really... And then... I'll just jump to this Go, bit. go, go. Yeah. Um, we found online Henry James wrote an autobiography called A Small Boy and Others, which is very nice mm. and full of food. Because Henry James, like so many people, has very strong feelings on the food associated with his childhood. Um, very strong, like, tangible memories that memories. are written about really beautifully. What's funny is Kate and I, one of the things we've been doing just in the lead up to this book coming out, we taught a course in Wales and on food writing. <laughs> Hello, French. <laughs> um, some people are here. Uh, and what was interesting to me was we asked people to write about food, mem food from their childhoods and people's memories are so strong and specific and clear when they're pulling from childhood. And it turns out Henry James was just the same. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. And then we were like, great, now we have Henry James on citrus fruit. Now we can have a whole citrusy yeah. section. And we, we have John Bailey writing about food and fiction and the connections between writers and what they eat and, and all sorts. So Olivia Potts on marmalade. Olivia and then Potts once you're on marmalade. marmalade, you're on like jars and jams and pickles and preserves. And you're on a whole new bit of table. But I think what was interesting to us about that was the idea of putting Nigella next to Henry James. Of saying, like, what happens if we consider Nigella as a writer rather than as a kind of slinky, sexy dressing gown goddess? She's no shade on being a slinky, sexy dressing gown goddess. She's amazing at it. But also, and I felt like this was important to us for mm. the buyers as well. She was the youngest ever literary editor of the Times. She's a, a writer who comes from this place of like incredible literary, literary scholarship. and scholarshipy background. Mm. And I was like, yeah, let's put her next to Henry James. Let's, let's see what happens. See how differently you read that piece once it's surrounded by the kind of text that she's referencing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we wanted to do with all of this. And in some ways, so I was talking to someone the other week and they we were talking about dinner parties. I'm just going to name drop here. It was the new food and drink editor of the Financial Times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know her, but I did DM her on Instagram <laughs> to try and make her my friend because I like to try and make people my friends. Um, anyway. I hope she's listening. I hope she listens to this and decides we can be friends. Imagine if she listens and is like, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> this girl. That was a stalker. I was just trying to be friends. <laughs> anyway, and she said, the key to a good dinner party, in her opinion, is all old friends, one new boyfriend. <laughs> and I find that to be... In 
Kind of perfect. A perfect encapsulation of what you want for dinner. You want enough people that you feel nice and happy, but also to be like, what's his deal? <laughs> this <laughs> guy. We're going to talk about him once guy. he goes. As soon as he's there. gone, we've got a lot to discuss. <laughs> and somebody who brings something new to the table. Somebody who kind of means that you're not sitting having the same conversation you've always been having. Somebody who comes and is like, yeah, I'm a new energy. I'm bringing a new thing. Here's my idea. Here's what I've got. I've brought a plate of something as well. Yeah, shake it up. Yeah. Which I think is quite like the Nora Ephron thing from Heartburn about how you have a perfect dinner party. You just have like four dishes, three of which people expect and one surprise. Mm. And I have to say, if you've read Heartburn and you remember that part, you'll remember that one of the surprises is lima beans with pear, which sounds... The most so deranged dish in that book. But surprising. But surprising, definitely, like, undeniably surprising. I would be so surprised. Is <laughs> a lima bean? What's a lima Butter bean? Yeah. Mm. 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 <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sold. What was interesting, though, was Nora Ephron actually was a real struggle for us in this book mm. because it became clear to us quite early on that we didn't want any of Heartburn because it felt like, I mean, look at us. You know we're going to put Nora Ephron in. <laughs> Yeah. You know we've both read Heartburn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it felt instead like maybe what we would want to do is if we were going to put Heartburn in, can we put the bit that happens in the film that doesn't happen in the book, which is spaghetti carbonara in bed, can we put that scene in and can we put the, t the, the um, screenplay in? And what we discovered through this is it's actually, unless you're in official sort of standard publishing, no one really knows how to deal with the other requests. The tricky stuff that isn't a book and doesn't have a person at HarperCollins that you can email whose job it is to look after permissions. I would say what I've learned is if any of you are ever pulling together an anthology, just give up on your dreams now. <laughs> Not in every sense, but of putting any screenplays yes. or scripts or bits of TV into your book. The other one we really desperately wanted was a bit of Julia Child's um, the, the French chef um, doing her, but it wasn't just the teleplay of what she was going to say, it was her annotated notes next to it of her editing her own script and dialogue and knowing what she was going to say and knowing how it was this beautiful piece about scallops and it's, it's her knowing how to cook the scallops and where each bit that she was going to say fell along that. It was truly... Such an extraordinary piece just of writing. Just a masterpiece of how clever you have to be to cook on television, mm. how much effort you have to put in, how carefully you have to plan it. Also in really any kind of television, just lots yeah. of being like, lift your arm here. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna lift my arm there and then I'll step to the left and then I'll say this. And all of it like being clear that she was trying to be unstudied mm -hmm. and very successfully just looking like she was naturally cooking. But I would say trying to persuade the Julia Child estate that we weren't mad. I wrote a great letter to the Julia Child estate. Kate's saying, letter made me cry. Saying, this is why this is important. This is why we feel that this, her specific voice in this situation, her sort of artistry and her clarity about the show she was making and what she wanted it to say and all of these things. And they were like, yeah, but she's got an autobiography. So could you use that instead? That'd be really good for us. <laughs> and we said, no, we don't want that bit. So. It was a, a real interesting conversation putting this together of we are left at this point really happy with a book we've made and knowing that there's an entirely different version of it where different people said yes or we started from a different corner point I think in the that's table. it, isn't it? It's less different people said yes because actually very few people said no. Mm. Julia Child and a couple of people who said no for 
quite often very valid, both very valid personal and political reasons, mm -hmm. which was very interesting. Um, but mostly everyone said yes. Some of those people said yes and tried to charge us so much money that they're not in the book. <laughs> That's the point. But they said yes, crucially. But what is interesting and fun was thinking, okay, well, now we've lost the word best. We lost the word best right at the top. This is now one dinner party. And the thing about having a dinner party is you simply cannot invite everyone you know and like to one dinner party because then it's a house party and that is different. Mm. <laughs> it is, you have to work out who's gonna sit next to each other. It's not just, it's an open door policy, everyone in, it's fine, don't even worry about it. We don't have to worry about the vibe or the mood at all. You know, we did an event a couple of weeks ago with Rebecca May Johnson and who has written Small Fires. There are many signed copies available for sale. Mm -hmm. I can't point to them because I can't see them, but I did see them earlier. Um, it's a great book. You should buy it. And at the end of this <laughs> event, I was like, yeah, I've got a question. Do you think you worry too much? <laughs> she was like, because I've been listening to you three talk for 45 minutes and I think you worry way too much. <laughs> and we were like, right. Great, nice first question. by a woman in the 12th row, thank you, thank you, yes. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course we worry too much. Have you, have you met anybody? Have you yeah. met anybody who exists in publishing? Mm -hmm. And the answer is that we do worry a lot. And one of those things we worried about was like how to position people in this book, how to sit them next to each other, how to make sure that they were always next to somebody interesting yeah and how to make sure as well that once we sent a copy of this book to people we really admire and think are fantastic that they didn't go well the hell have you put me next to that bitch um, exactly imagine like when you go to a wedding and you're like i see that I see. table i've been put that's here. who i am to you here really yeah okay i am at this table in your life yeah <laughs> i have to know your favorite couples that you've put next to each other <laughs> and apart from nigella and henry who have you got next to each other that you're so obsessed with <laughs> Please hold. <laughs> um, the question for the microphone, which I didn't do the first time, oh, I'm yeah. sorry, um, is which couples are we really proud of having placed together? Which people have we gone, hey, I reckon you'll have some stuff to talk about at this <laughs> wedding. I, so people I really, there's like a couple of runs I really love that are less like couples where they'll have things to talk about, but like corners where I think, yeah, there's a lot going on there. That's like a really people juicy in a row conversation. Where, yeah. So, as we said, I find that the oranges run to be really satisfying because mm -hmm. we go from John McPhee on oranges to Olivia Potts, uh, an essay about judging the British Marmalade Awards, to a bit of Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle, the one about like jams and jellies. Then we go into Salman Rushdie, Midnight's Children. And then we come into a bit of Little Women. The and pic then the pickled limes, of pickled course. Pickled limes. And then you're into Abby Fisher, which is an amazing, she was a former enslaved, former person enslaved woman who wrote really one of the first African-American cookbooks. And that was amazing for a lot of reasons, partly because it's amazing and partly because there are very few non-old white men who are mm. out of copy right now, very few, writing cookbooks. Mm. And she was a huge find for us. Yeah, and her book also vanished for a century and then was found and republished and, and brought back in, but had sort of, she was not, not literate, so worked with somebody to write. And this, this extraordinary book is like dotted throughout the book because there's so many great little runs of recipes that work. Yeah, and then you go into a bit of Minjin Lee's Pachinko about the Making kimchi. 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 Mm. And it's like, those people are gonna have a great conversation about preserves. Preserving, pickling, why we do it also, yep. because none of them are doing it in a vacuum. None of them are like, 
Wow, this is a simple and easy way to do it. Mm -hmm. They're all trying to preserve something important. Yeah, and there's a big conversation there about sort of from Liv's piece on Marmalade that is so much about why we as a country where oranges don't grow are obsessed with marmalade, like why that has become a thing in the UK. What is it that that, why are we the people that hold the, the marmalade awards in the world? Why is that, why is that a thing? Yeah. Through to like what, you know, the, the work, the enormous work of making barrels of kimchi to sell in a market and what that is and what that does for this family in Pachinko. Um, having looked at this, I've now just seen a pair I really was so pleased with, which was the... Jimmy. No. no, it was going no. to be the... Oh, yeah, no good, yeah. So I knew that I wanted a bit of a graphic novel in there and I was pretty sure it was going to be Embroideries by Mariana Satrapi. And it's that first bit, if you've read it, the first part where she is, I'm going to find it because it, it reproduced better than I could have dreamed. This was our panel. It was one of the last pieces that came together because it's so difficult to scale it down and make it fit on a page oh, look and we, how nice that is we were worried that the text wouldn't be readable once you'd scaled it down beyond like graphic novel size but so beautiful um it's about tea and about her grandmother who was an opium addict and it's about how this her and it's all about a tea party and how her grandma needed the opium crumbled into her tea in the morning so that she would stop being horrible to everyone mm -hmm. and instead be a lovely woman and we're like who can we sit this next to um I was like, I feel like she's going to get, she's got a lot to say to James Joyce. I was like, I feel like James Joyce knows some things about people and moods mm -hmm. and the intricacies of family. And also the bit of Ulysses I really love is that first bit where he's cooking kidneys and then he goes up to take a, a cup of tea up to his wife who's in bed. And I was like, tea, great, that's enough for Link. And I was like, who are we going to put on the other side? And this was a really proud moment for me because I very rarely get to introduce Kate to a proper book. <laughs> like I do a lot of introducing Kate to romance and like silly thrillers and that's yeah and fun stuff on the internet yeah that's true but I very rarely introduce Kate to like an actual book that people read in bookshops because Kate has read all the books that people buy in nice bookshops and I've read none of them because I only want fun I only love fun I love very I love Ulysses I love weird experimental fiction and I love uh, fun books where you know who's going to kiss or who's going to die yeah <laughs> I don't like to guess I like to be like wow these two people have met on 12% 12% of the way through 12% of the yeah. way through Kate also writes rom-coms her new one experience is coming out next year you should pre-order it now it's great it's <laughs> a very nice that's very nice thank you I just like to sell your books wherever we go um yeah I like books where you know when they've met and you're like, wow, what trials and tribulations will happen to you before you kiss? And then after you've kissed once, what will happen to you then? What will happen to you the then? The false high, the, the false, false low. The false low. Um, so then I was like, you know what? I actually have read a real book here that Kate has not read, which is Sea of Poppies by Amitav Ghosh, which I love so much. I, I love it. And I was like, Kate, have you read it? Being like, of course she's read it. And she hadn't. And I was like, go now, go immediately. Put it on your Kindle, hang up the phone and we'll talk tomorrow mm -hmm. <laughs> or the next day when you finished it. And I'm not as fast reader as Ellis, so I'd finished like three chapters by that point. That's okay. Yeah. I forget you. Um, but I understood that you also wanted to read it all. Yes. And it's this amazing thing about a... Uh, the book is a huge epic that goes on for three books and you should read it immediately. But this first... And also the fact I am telling you to read this big epic that goes on with three <laughs> books that is historical should tell you how good it is because I really don't read heavy books that go on for many pages. Mm. As I say, 
I don't know who's going to kiss in this. <laughs> I don't know who's going to die. It's going to come out of left. Yeah. Anyone could die. Anyone could that's die. The, that's, that's the, the problem. problem. Anyone, Anyone could, die. could die. I don't like books where I don't know. It's like, so if you could write for me a list on the first page of like characters who make it, characters who don't. <laughs> I would People people who kiss. <laughs> yeah, just like, just a quick outline. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but it was a really good... And this was and part they, of the so joy It's a mother well. and a daughter who are... It's such a beautiful piece. Packing lunch to go off to the fields and pick opium mm -hmm. together. And I was like, yes, this is great. And it's kind of about opium pickers in India. But also I was like, this will really pull out the kind of empire strands and the colonial strands from embroideries, which are obviously already there, but are not quite as kind of expanded on mm. in the extract we chose. And I was like, yes. So that was a thing I was really proud of, not least because I got to say to Kate, like, hey, Kate, there's a book. It's actually for grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> it's for grown-ups and there's not that much kissing. <laughs> um, and that was the real joy as well was... We, we sort of made a blanket rule from the beginning that any piece that ended up in the book had to be double approved. So we weren't, we were essentially coming at it from, if anyone is like, eh, I'm not sure that's the right piece or I'm not sure I love it, then it would just, very much it was yeses. very easily like, great, no, two yeses, one no. to the side, two, two yeses, one no was the rule. And so it was a, a real joy to just be sending each other stuff with that sort of rush of like, I think this is perfect. I think this is a really great piece, but you won't have read it yet. And maybe it's not gonna be ideal here and maybe it's not gonna work. And being able to send stuff back and forth. This took, the book took us about 18 months to put together in terms of finding pieces and doing that stage of it. And so, and really that stage of it, the finding pieces and deciding which pieces were gonna be in the book went for until the day of publication, uh, until the day it went off to print, because every time we would lose yeah. a piece, we'd have to reorganize the book to make it fit. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Yes. Did you commission anything specifically for the Did we commission anything we specifically not. for the Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, no... I wanted to, we were very much not allowed because that opens up an enormous can of worms in terms of... Who owns it? Who owns it and who owns what? I... It's a quite understood publishing thing of taking something for an anthology and going, we, are, we have this use of this piece, but you retain permission to use that in other places and it's yours and it exists somewhere else. But for it to only exist in the anthology becomes a, a slightly more complicated thing. I would say. We understand. Yeah, as you can probably imagine, I was extremely blasé. I was like, we're going to commission this and this and this. And Kate was like, I think legally we're sort of on shaky ground with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I... W 
there are pieces that I wish existed, that I wish had the money to commission. Mm -hmm. I think the world needs a, Vittle should do this, mm. a huge thing about insects um, and eating insects. So I, I rang Kate with this fabulous idea for the beginning of the book. And I was like, Kate, you know how we both love I Capture the Castle? We will begin with I Capture the Castle. We will go to Dan Saladino's uh, Hadza Honey from Eating to Extinction. I hope some of you have read Eating to Extinction. If not, it's out in paperback. So it's fantastic. Great. Um, I don't know him, so I'm just selling his books. I chaired an event with him and he is just even more clever than the book suggests it's, that he is, which is already And we knew we wanted clever. both those pieces, so we were really clear that we want to begin with this little bit of I Capture the Castle, because it's, it's that lovely feeling. Of, just three sentences of the joy of, of honey eating bread and, and honey. Yeah. And I was like, and we'll go to Hadza Honey. And then, because Hadza Honey is about, you know, indigenous ways of eating and how, you know, the future is there. It's like, and then we're going to do this really incredible piece about uh, eating insects. And after we've done this piece about eating insects, we're going to go to Mary Oliver's poem about uh, the grasshopper. Uh, it's a summer's day, a grasshopper eating sugar. And then... We're going to go to the very hungry caterpillar. No, and, you know, eating insects. And yeah, then we're going to go to an amazing piece by an indigenous Australian mm -hmm. um, about traditional Australian food culture. And it's going to be brilliant. And then we're going to go to uh, the grasshopper eating sugar. And then we're going to have a big run from the very hungry caterpillar. I was like, this encompasses everything I believe about this book. The political, the, you know, the, the children's book as art and the, the poem fun. and the fun, but also the big serious pieces. And Kate was like, great, can you send them over? And I was like, Wait, what? And she was like, the amazing pieces that you have found about the insects and the Australian. And I was like, no, no, I, no, I have We now look for the piece about the insects. <laughs> I, have, I have created these pieces. <laughs> Someone must have written them. Uh, they haven't? Nope. Which was actually one of the huge surprises to me in making this book, and I think was a real shock to Kate and I, indigenous food writing that's traditionally published enough to borrow from. Mm -hmm. And that includes online. We... There's a bit of sub, someone's Substack newsletter yeah, yeah. in here. Um, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's not all sort of traditional book publishing, but it's certainly something that exists in a place where you can get in touch with the original author and in a way that is able to be reproduced in a book. So not a zine, for example, um, mm -hmm. because format-wise it's really difficult to reproduce. Copyright-wise also. Copyright-wise really it's tricky. the same as it not being published. Yeah. Um, and so we... We were looking for ages for a piece from an Indigenous Australian writer uh, and there simply exists one and it's owned by, uh, by a publisher who, when we emailed them, said, yes, that will be £2,000 to look into. Not to approve, but like as a minimum, this is where we start. We are letting the publisher remain nameless, but if you ask me afterwards, I will tell you. Still <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, I, and I was really like, I can't... I. I I remember getting an email and just being like, £2,000 to look into it, but we're trying to do something good. We're trying to, this is the, what? And we wrote back another, another beautiful email and they were like, yeah, okay, but £2,000 to reply to this email. <laughs> Very much like, this is your last email for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at some point we're going to start charging you just to say no. Yes, it did feel. Mm. And I think what was interesting was actually... I feel like I personally have a very interesting grasp on lots of people in the industry now and lots of publishers and also lots of food writing and mm -hmm. how they work. Some people, I have to tell you, are total angels who gave us their pieces for free or in some cases waded into battle with their publisher to let us have this book for much cheaper. Dan Saladino, yeah. one such, who was like, 
No, I know my, because when you republish something that's in hardback, they hate that. No one wants you to reprint something that's in hardback because they want people to buy the hardback. So, you know, if a book has just come out, and if we're want... saying we want a whole chapter, we want a whole thing so that we can tell the story from beginning to end, we're not talking about a line, we're not talking about sort of a paragraph, we are talking about an entire piece of somebody's work. And, and yeah, it, it is a complicated thing when something has been published really recently because, of course, the impulse of that publisher is going to be to say, no, they no. can buy our book. Yeah. We've just spent all this money publishing. <laughs> um, but there are some people, I think, it's important to say, Nikki Segnet, for example. Yeah. Lots of people were incredibly generous and kind. And I think that was one of the wonderful things about writing, making this book has been being able to get in touch with so many people who we really admire, we admire so deeply and being like, we love you. <laughs> Can we, please, would you let us? And here would are the people we party? want on the other side and how would that feel for you? And this is what we, this is the conversation we want to have around this piece. Um, as to food authors, has it made you think differently about how you all write about food going forward? There's a very interesting question, which was, uh, as two food writers, has it made us think about things, uh, the way we will write about food moving forward and things we might do differently now that we're sort of alive to that, that conversation? Do you have an answer? I, I do. I think that what has, what has been really interesting about it, uh, what has been really interesting about it, as somebody who is, I think, in the process of moving away from one part of my work, which is how I started writing books, which is, and I say this with love and affection for the books, but was a, an idea first rather than a me-led thing first. So the idea of my original books is I write about food and literature and the idea is much bigger than me personally. Um, and I have done four of those books and I love them all, but the next cookbook I write will be like, do you wanna know what I make for dinner? And, and it's much more of a like me thing. It's it's I'm asking you to come at it without, without the gimmick for want of a better better word. It's not a gimmick, but without the sort of framework. Um, and and it did make me go back and read what I had written before. It made me go back and read something that is sort of eight years old or ten years old or whatever else I was writing and go. Does that I feel like I'm quite a different person to the person I was eight or ten years ago when I started writing. I feel like quite a lot has changed in my life. I am a much happier person. I'm a much sort of more comfortable in myself person with a greater sense of who I am and what I offer. And it has been really interesting to consider what I would say if somebody had gone back and said, I want to reproduce this piece from 2015. How do you feel about that? And I think I would feel... Not necessarily that it would be a no, but just that it maybe didn't represent me as best as it could. I think for me, the answer is more complicated because <laughs> <laughs> writing for me is so much a process of what my friend Caroline used to call open a vein writing, <laughs> which is just me being like, it's all on the page. And then sitting there and being like, OK, now I have 200,000 words. Which of these words can go into a 75,000 word book? So writing for me is very much a put it all out and then pull it all back in. And I think the thing I am trying to do with my work is to become less, I'm trying to become even more strict on what gets through in that final edit, which I think was the same thing. And I think, I think a couple, like one of the people who said they didn't want to be in it in particular made me really 
think hard about, I don't think I would want to be in an anthology with any of my work previously. Maybe some of the essays, but probably not from Midnight Chicken because, yeah, a lot has changed in my life since I wrote mm. those books. And so I think, if anything, it's made me more careful. It makes me feel more careful about how I present myself and how I present food writing as a whole. I think I feel, this is going to sound sort of falsely modest, but I promise it's actual modest. <laughs> and I'm not asking for praise. It made me feel like one small part of a vast ecosystem of art that's being created about this subject. It made me very aware of like, what do I want to make? Mm -hmm. What do I not want to make? And also, what a tiny little speck I am. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are people who I think were just like born to write mm. these incredible pieces about food, whose food writing is, like Dan Saladino is one of them, but also so many other people whose food writing, Jimmy Famarewa, I think, mm. is another person who, when I was reading, I don't know if you've, any of you have read his latest book, which is called Settlers. Settlers journey through the food, faith and culture of black African London. It is breathtakingly good. And we actually took a whole chapter. A whole chapter. And he was one of the people who we actually cut other people to make room for financially because we just thought, nobody's doing this. Nobody's doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. no, one is, no one is exploring this story in the way yeah. you're doing it. And his book was so new that it was a real like- Oh, it was like three talk. weeks old. You know, it was, it, when we contacted, it was like, yeah, that's just come out and you want an eighth of the book. You want like the whole chapter out of eight chapters. I have to say, we wrote him a deranged card that included the lines, when you're not on MasterChef, we, 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 we turn it off. <laughs> so we insane we to say to something you one. admire. Dear Jimmy, <laughs> we hope you enjoy this book. When you're not on MasterChef, we watch another programme. <laughs> but it is true. Mm. But yeah, so I think it, it really gave me a sense as well of going, it is so much fun to wonder who you sit beside and what things you have to say to somebody else who also writes about food, who might not be a person you would actually normally consider yourself as somebody who would go to dinner with them. You know, if, if we're talking about it being a dinner party and that sort of sense of you get put beside somebody, it's really interesting to go, what would I have to say if I sat down next to X or Y? I mean, luckily, we sat ourselves down in quite good places. Oh, this yeah. question. Hello. Uh, so what's the right way to read the book? Do you sort of it's a great... The, the question is, uh, what's the right way to read the book? Do you sort of start somewhere? Do you dance around the table? What do you do? I love... I'm, I, I, I bet you can guess our answers to this in that I'm a real dance-arounderer. <laughs> and I think Kate... Would, I like And not. Kate would read it <laughs> sequentially. Yeah. Like, I read in general in a very kind of mad magpie fashion. I have about eight books on the go at once. I like to kind of build myself a little fort mm -hmm. and just be like, this, this, oh, now I'll read this. Now I'll read this and this and this. And I think if you don't read as fast as Ella then your tendency might be to just... I think the danger with an anthology is that you open it and go, ha, huh, I know that, that voice, I know that person, I'll go straight there and then go back to the contents page and find somebody else who feels familiar and go straight back there again. And I think what feels fun here, we hope, is that this is a bunch of old friends and one new boyfriend where you hopefully read a piece and then continue to the next piece and are introduced to somebody new or are introduced to somebody new even not in a... 
a, a context of you've never heard of that person before, but maybe you haven't read Maya Angelou talking about food before. Maybe and it really is so good. It's so good. So it's, I think it hopefully introduces people to you even in just a different context, even if they're not a different voice. And that the way to do that is to read it sequentially because one piece should take you to the next. But I think also when you dip in, our, our hope is that then you want to keep reading mm. and that you want, you're like, oh, I opened it up at, I'm opening it at a random page. Oh, it's Jimmy Farmer again. Let's do someone <laughs> else. Um, um, for example, I have opened it up at random to a piece we are so proud to, to include, which is the readers of The Sun magazine, which not is not the Sun the newspaper. Sun newspaper. Um, it's, an American, it's an American magazine. And in 1984, The Sun magazine in America invited its readers, MISC, to write in with their experience of doing the dishes. And we have pages and pages of just people's, people's. people from all over America in 1984 just writing a little paragraph about what washing up means in their household and to them and to their family and for who they do it for and whatever else. And that was a, a sort of response to being on page 14 of pieces about washing up because we'd found a great piece by Shelley Jackson and uh, that we'd wanted to include. Uh, and Catherine Heine. And Catherine Heine's piece and Maxine, Maxine Hong Kingston. Kingston's piece. And so we knew we needed another piece of writing about washing up. And so, yeah, that was a, a great find on page 14 of Google. I just actually, I just want to read like the tiniest bit from yeah. the last letter in this Letters to the Sun magazine because it's so nice. What I think of is Alan Watts. Alan Watts, I am told, used to wash dishes very, very slowly, one at a time. He would hold them up and admire them in every stage of the process. Look how clean it is. Look how it shines, he would exclaim with delight. <laughs> and that's from Renee Jean Hill in Seattle, Washington in 1984. And I loved that. I love that she was then being like, well, actually, this isn't about me, but this is about Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it felt like a perfect encapsulation of what we were trying to do with this, is that when you're asked, what do you think about washing dishes? You think about yourself, but you also think about, like, places you've washed dishes and... Meals that you've cooked and meals your friends have cooked and people's kitchens where you've washed up and the difference between going somewhere for dinner where you know you can wash up and somewhere where you're absolutely not going to be washing up because that's not the vibe. And all Where's of those, it not the vibe? When you don't know the people well enough. Where I, I wouldn't step in someone's kitchen if I don't know them well enough. I think if I was eating dinner at someone's house, I would offer to do the washing up. I think I would offer, but I would assume they'd say no. But you know what? That's true, actually, because I went for dinner, I went for lunch at someone's house. Yeah. And I didn't know her very well. And she started washing up while we were all eating. She's American. And, <laughs> and she was like, no, no, this is, um, we were all like, in England, when you start doing the washing up, at, when people are still at the table, what you mean is you have overstayed, you have your, overstayed welcome. your welcome. Please <laughs> and she was like, no, I, I think of what I'm doing as cleaning the house mm -hmm. to make it a lovely zone for us to be in. And we were all like, no, no, the signal is, <laughs> should we get our coats? Yeah. <laughs> you have removed the plates. But it is that thing. Yeah, of, again, you know, cultural things cultural and there's things so and... much going on. And I think... For us, that is always the case with all food writing. Mm. Everything we talk about when we talk about food is political. It doesn't matter. Even a recipe that has nothing else in it, just the bare bones of a recipe, just the ingredients and method, is so political because where did those ingredients come from? You can really tell here that uh, I did my undergraduate dissertation on uh, politics of food in literature. <laughs> Sugar. Where does it come from? Sugar and the Famous Five. Sugar and the Famous Five, yeah. 
Um, but yes, I, we, we talked loads about what we were saying with the book and conversations we wanted to start and conversations we wanted to continue and to have and to people to bring in. And that feels like a really, I think putting people next to somebody unexpected felt like a good way to do that without being like, and here's the serious bit about things that you need skip. to know about food. And instead just going like, well, what if those pieces that do talk to us about colonialism, that do talk to us about poverty, that do talk to us about communities that don't have access to food, what if we put them beside pieces that invite you in in sort of a sense of warmth? Yeah, I don't It's much know. easier to have a conversation about that yes. when you're a bit warm. Hi. You've talked about it, how it might impact your food writing. Is it changed the way you cook? I think... Um, we talked about yeah. so the question oh. was <laughs> um we've talked about how this changes our food writing does it change the way we cook mm. i think yes i think for me yes i mm. think i am much more you know i'm not going to lie and say i wasn't a noticer before but i think when you spend a long time immersed in the way other people cook i would say for example brian washington yeah it makes me extremely hungry for japanese food mm-hmm um, I don't know if any of you have read a memorial or... I mean, Brian Washington? Yeah, yes, I do. you do. You um, do. Memorial or Family Meal, which is the latest one. And I saw... The oh, there's nice hardbacks there. around, yeah. It's really great, the Family Meal. It really is. Um, but he is an African-American writer who writes a lot about Japanese food. Mm -hmm. And if you can read Memorial without immediately needing to learn how to cook beautiful Japanese food, you haven't read Memorial properly. Um, but... Premise of Memorial. Okay, I'm just going to yeah, yeah, the sales pitch. Yeah. I don't, again, memorial. I don't know this man. <laughs> I appreciate I've been selling Kate's books at you, but now I'm just going to sell you Memorial. Okay, premise is, um, there is a man. He lives together with someone who is sort of his boyfriend. They are kind, they are together. They are, he is definitely sure that they are together. They are boyfriends. The other guy is, I would say, less, less convinced. convinced, yeah. And he's like, listen, my father is ill. And I have to go back to Japan. And our hero is like, oh, okay. And he's like, also, yes. my mother will be arriving this evening. To I our shared house. To our shared house. I don't know when I will be back and I don't know when my mother is leaving. Goodbye. Enjoy. <laughs> and our hero is like, are we breaking up? And the man who has to go to Japan is like, I don't know. It's complicated, isn't it? Life is complicated. I'll call you from Japan. I'll call you from Japan <laughs> if I can. And my dad hasn't died. Mm -hmm. What a premise. So you have, as a starting point, just this man who works in a daycare centre mm -hmm. and his kind of mother-in-law, but not obviously because she's maybe his ex-boyfriend's mum and she doesn't speak any English. She only speaks Japanese. Living in a small one-bedroom flat. Just trying to live. Just trying to live. And the way they kind of start to communicate is through food. And he is, I think the hero is Mex is he yeah. African-American with Mexican heritage as yeah, well? Yeah, I think so. And so he cooks a lot and the mother-in-law cooks, cooks a lot. Cooks a lot, yeah. And they kind of come together and they clash over food and they eat together. They eat together a lot. And I would say that really made me very determined mm. to learn to cook better Japanese food. Mm -hmm. oh, it's such a great book. And uh, it's, there's a beautiful extract from it in here. In fact, quite it was a, a complicated, complicated extract. extract because it turns out that if you have two characters, male and female, and you don't explicitly say at the top, by the way, she's his mother-in-law, 
it reads like quite a horrible book about a heterosexual couple. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a, a relationship you absolutely would not want to be in, but one where, that is quite specifically like, surely that's what's happening here if we don't hear otherwise. The assumption is which maybe... Which was fascinating. It's, which is fascinating. But did mean that Brian Washington had to be extremely nice to us and let us chop his book so that we could make Which a clear up top. Which is anthologies work. No. You say, we'd like to take from page seven to page 32, and we want all of it. Rather mm -hmm. than being like, hello, we'd like a paragraph this from here. So we can explain who they are to each other, and then we're going to do sections in order whenever they're cooking. We'll keep returning to the story. And luckily for us, it had been extracted in The New Yorker and had been extracted in that way. And so we got so in touch and, and the, the publishers were like, no, we want you to, you, you would have to just take it wholesale. And we had to write a letter and be like, except if we could just take this one from the, the New, New Yorker. The New Yorker did it. Yeah. <laughs> we're like the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the podcast, I made an expression to imply that. That we're not like we're the New not Yorker. Like the New yeah. Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> for people listening at home, we do not think we are the New Yorker. Um, but that was, I, I, I keep coming back to this, but getting to reach out and make these connections. Mm. Thing like, Brian Washington knows we exist. Yeah. Which is a nice way Salman to Salman Rushdie corrected us in the bio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Salman Rushdie did not write the famous advertising slogans that the internet and many interviews say that he did. And At least seven sources claim that he wrote. Go to work on an egg. Go to work on an egg. He did not write. He did not write, go to work on And we egg. know this because you wrote us a stern email to tell us. <laughs> and said, I did not write that line, but otherwise fine. <laughs> I did not write that, otherwise fine, thank you. Oops, to be, to be disciplined by Rushdie. <laughs> what to do with that? But that, I mean, truly, what a wonderful life experience. Mm. And I think, I think I'm going to tell my Sylvia. Yeah, yeah, so tell us Okay, so this is the best thing that has happened to me as a course of this book. Yeah, I don't get the nice Julia Child story because we didn't actually get the peeks in. No. But the Sylvia Plath story is wonderful. At the same time as the Julia yes. Child crushing disappointment was happening. Um, we also had a sort of, this, I was about to say a crushing disappointment, but there were highs, there were lows. Yeah. It's quite a short story for so many highs and lows. Um, I knew right from the start that one thing I wanted to include was some handwritten recipes, straightforward recipes that you would use in a kitchen. Because I was like, that is food writing. And that's probably the piece of food writing that most people are most familiar with is like the recipe as a, as a tool. Mm -hmm. um, back to utility, which is yeah, something yeah. we talked about with Rebecca Main Johnson at that event, which I think is something her book is very much mm. kind of used, used to. It's kind of around, around. the utility yeah. of what she's doing and the utility of, of food and art and things like that. Anyway, I wanted a, like a straightforward, useful recipe card of some kind. It's like, okay, but whose? Because there's ours, but no. And it's like, okay, well, who? Like, do we want a famous person? It's like a famous chef? Probably not, because their recipe cards are not... Anyway, domestic in the same way. Exactly, they're not yeah. domestic. And so there I was kind of... Kate was not... Kate and I were in different houses at the time, which meant that Kate was working very hard and I was clicking around on the internet looking at things I might buy. Um, and for some reason, I was on the Sotheby's, Sotheby's website. I've never bought anything from an auction. I once tried to buy something on eBay and cried for like an hour. I'm not, I'm not a Sotheby's person. But anyway, I was like, let's just see what's for sale. It's, it's 3 p.m. I should mm -hmm. be writing this thing. Mm -hmm. Sotheby's. Anyway, and I was like, I'll just click through the uh, Sylvia Plath auction on Sotheby's that will kill 45 minutes um which is how I get through the day <laughs> pretending to write but really looking at famous people's skirts on the internet um and I was like clicking through and coincidentally I had written an essay that got that I cut from the year of miracles about Sylvia Plath's tomato soup cake and how much she loved the joy of cooking 
And like most women, <laughs> most bookish women, I have had an extensive Sylvia Plath phase starting from the age of, you know, of 12 and really thinking about her every day of my life until I was sort of 24 and then just kind of tapering off to maybe like once or twice a week more on special occasions. And I was like, Sylvia Plath, Sylvia Plath. And I was clicking and there were Sylvia Plath's recipe cards up on the Sotheby's website for sale. Her daughter put everything up for sale because she said she didn't have any kids and didn't want any and didn't have any other family and thought that her mother's things should go to places where people loved them, mm. which I think is a very nice impulse. And I was like, Sylvia Plath's recipe cards. Why, why shouldn't we use Sylvia Plath's recipe cards? That's food writing. That's doing that thing again where you see someone in a completely new light. Anyway, we wrote to Sotheby's and Sotheby's were like, absolutely not. Why? Why? No. <laughs> what are you talking about? You can't have an auction photograph. And everyone's like, okay, well, that's that then. And I was like, no. And then I wrote to Sotheby's again and Sotheby's came back with, well, look, you can write to Frida Hughes. We won't stop it if she says yes. And I wrote to Frida Hughes, who is Sylvia Plath's daughter. And I just got to put in everything, everything that Sylvia Plath had meant to me for many years and how on a very personal level, and now I'm remembering this is going on a podcast, so you know what, fine. Yeah. Um, on a very personal level, when somebody dies uh, young, who is talented, there is a real tendency of everybody to see them as some kind of saint, some kind of person who was like fated to die young, who was kind of just a genius and nothing else, mm -hmm. or like to make them into something divorced from reality, divorced from the domestic. And obviously, if you have read my books or been in any way attached to me online in the last 10 years, you will understand why this had some resonance for mm -hmm. me. I put all this in my letter and just saying how important I thought it was to include these recipe cards next to Sylvia Plath's poetry to kind of, to make you see how bad it was that she died. <laughs> Yeah. To make you see that this was a person with so much going on, like a person who stood in her kitchen and was like looking at a little, the recipe cards are really stained, like there's marks on them, like you can see where she's crossed stuff out. It's like this was a person who stood in her kitchen with a pen in her hand. And the magnitude of, of the loss of somebody like that, I think you can only understand by looking at that domestic then domestic minutiae. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Minutiae. It's a word I get wrong yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my heart, I always want to say my new DI. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's cute. I know, isn't it? But unfortunately wrong. Yeah. Anyway, and I got to write all this down in a letter to Frida Hughes. And Frida Hughes was like, yeah, absolutely. I understand cool. exactly what you meant. Cool, great, go ahead. And I was like, oh, I, I got to tell you what this meant to me. Mm. And I got to explain why it was important. And now not the letter itself, but a huge chunk of what I wrote, I made as an introduction to the letters. Mm -hmm. And now I get to give this to other people, maybe who have lost somebody and feel that that person's loss was so enormous that the truth that their domestic lives become kind of irrelevant. Like when someone dies, you don't think a lot about the small loss. Mm. I think it's very tempting to think about it as like the loss of the genius cataclysm. and the loss of the big. Yeah, and mm. even when, you know, even when a non-genius dies. Even when a non-genius dies, it's pretty bad. <laughs> but like, maybe there is a place there. Maybe now I can make a place in this collection of food writing for people to kind of pause and think about the importance of the domestic and how it's what matters and how it's what 
the human is what, what lasts. And how, it's how most people engage with food. Yeah. Like the vast majority of people in the world are not doing food writing in the way that it is most of the other places in the book. Most people are passing recipes from parents to offspring again and again and sending recipe cards around the world. You know, I have a box of recipe cards that came with me to the UK when I moved here in a backpack because they are the things that we cooked at home. And it's that and sort of thing. And how those people are the same people. It's all the same. The people writing the big things and the people writing the little things are often the same. People who've only written a recipe card in their lives have the same magnitude of feeling about food as somebody who has written... 15 books. 15 books. And I, I think it was that feeling of community that I most wanted to, to get to here. This feeling of communality, of shared, mm -hmm. shared experience. And it, how it's only when we have those kind of moments of, of kind of common shared tenderness, really, of domesticity, that it makes it possible for us to have all the bigger conversations as well. I don't know if any of you have listened to Esther Perel. Um, I expect so. We're in the LRB. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she ha there's a really early one where this couple keep fighting and she's like, mm, OK, when you keep fighting, when you start to fight, I want you to lie down. Lie down. <laughs> It's like, just get really comfortable, lie down. And they're like, why? <laughs> so we'll impede our fighting. And she's like, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to be angry when, you're, when, you feel, when your body knows it's safe and comfortable. And I think part of the reason, you know, all old friends and one new boyfriend was such a guiding light for us is like, how do we get people to have hard conversations? How do we get people to think big things mm. without feeling panicked or afraid or, you know, in this case, close the book, walk away. Yeah, or like it's too big and I can't have feelings on this because there's too many things to feel and I actually don't know what to feel anymore. I don't know what the shape yeah. of it is. And for me, that's the question we're all kind of wrestling with as artists and readers, but also as people. It's like, how do we get people to feel safe enough to have the big conversations about like what it means to be a person? How do we treat other people? How do we make a space that feels, that makes those conversations yeah. feel feel like not a chore or something or a duty or something we have to get through, but like, the great joy of being alive is like, how do we connect with people and how do we make those connections better? Mm -hmm. Exactly. A question. Have you had any feedback from the writers, like any of the alive, well, yeah. the dead ones have not. The dead ones, back. no. Yeah. <laughs> not so much from the dead ones. The question was, have we, sorry. Um, that have started conversations for them that they haven't necessarily. So the question is, have we had any feedback from the living writers specifically about whether it's started <laughs> conversations with it for them? Um, and I think, I don't know whether we've had any about the conversations. We've had a lot of feedback from people in the book, which has been extremely amazing and, 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 and joyful for us. Yeah, and I think that the, the big thing that we realise and notice through that is that novelists are thrilled that we like their food and food writers are thrilled we like their writing. <laughs> And that that feels like a really nice thing to be like, yes, you are here in this book together, bumping up against each other. Yeah. I'm, what time is it? I'm yes, I'm aware that we're probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to cause a short as well. No, like... no, no, you're right. That was kind of a nice place to end, to be honest. That was, ho <laughs> was sort of where we hosted it. really beautiful things you just said at the end. Um, um, Sylvia Plus drawings as well are really beautiful. If you, if you haven't seen them, there's a Faber and Faber book of her drawings and it just gives an extra level to like... All the things she was thinking about making. Anyway, that's just that's great. I yeah, about and I 
Cool. That's fine. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> See, this right. is, but this is the thing. Right? This is the thing about conversations about art. Yeah. Just being like, yeah. 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 We've got it in stock downstairs as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, we will be providing yeah, reading lists and book lists. No, no, no. That's book. correct. No, actually, I mean, that was the last thing I That's our down. last point. So <laughs> it's fine. Um, this was, it was perfect. I'm really, really, I'm, I'm so happy you could both come. And I... You know, in all my years of doing this, I don't think I've ever heard an event be a better advert for a book. <laughs> Honestly, it's so beautiful. And if you haven't got it already, I would, uh, you know, invite you to come and buy a copy. Um, Please buy a copy. <laughs> you will, side? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's, um, yeah, we'll make some space. Come and, uh, you'll sign. Come and buy some books and thank Kate and Ella. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. No, you're great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.